Lord, we are humbled to stand here and to read your word together and to then sit under the preaching of your word. Lord, we ask that you would have your way with us this Christmas uh, celebration. Lord, as your messenger, simply use me, Lord, as your mouthpiece. But Lord, may we be encouraged and strengthened and challenged and convicted, Lord, by this text, which we often refer to during this Christmas season. And yet, Lord, at the same time, may not know why it is there and the impact of it in history, even in the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, today, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us insight? Would you strengthen us through your word? And, uh, Lord, would you be glorified today? We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, during this Christmas season, uh, we uh, are so inundated with, with Christian sayings and Christian cliches, and you're probably tired of a few of them, but here are some that just come to mind as I've uh, encountered them, even this Christmas. You know, you see these on the commercials, you see them on t-shirts, you, you see them uh, at the mall in the stores as you go in. You know, they pick up on bits and pieces of the Christmas story, and Christmas season that, you know, the world can tolerate, right? And they put them up there. Um, they're in the songs that are playing on the radio. Um, and sometimes they're in the, the soupy Christmas TV shows that we watch. Um, and some of you with a hanky in your hand, right? Um, here are some of the ones I thought of. Christmas is the season of cheer that lasts throughout the year. Okay, all right, enough of that one. Um, it is Christmas in the heart that puts Christmas in the air. Like, okay, sounds pretty good. Um, Christmas is not a much, as much about opening our presents as opening our hearts. Okay? Christmas is a season for love, joy, and peace for all. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm reading these and I'm, I'm bringing these up, but you, you have to understand here that some of these words can mean all sorts of things depending on the person who's saying it. But how about this one? Jesus is the reason for the season. Now, you might have a t-shirt with that on. You might actually have some decoration up at your home that says Jesus is the reason for the season. But my question to you and to anyone who might say that is, well, which Jesus are you talking about? Which Jesus is the reason for the season? What kind of Jesus is the reason for the season? You say, well, of course, it's the Jesus of the Bible. But that's not what everyone understands. They fill in the Jesus they want. So we have to define who this Jesus is and show why he actually came. He might be saying, Pastor Rod, why are you such a Grinch? See, there's a whole other cliche that you guys are using even right now, okay? Don't you like Christmas? I love the Christmas season. Um, the opportunity to spend with family. Who's spending time with family this Christmas season? Right? Um, who's spending time with the extended family this Christmas season? Right? Who's avoiding spending time? All right, don't have to answer that one. We'll wait for New Year's for that, right? Um, I enjoy the, 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 the privilege of giving and the receiving of gifts. I enjoy singing the Christmas songs. About 10 o'clock last night, I was in my study, and I heard doors kind of, you know, rattling and pitter-patter of feet climbing up the stairs and a knock on the door and I opened it up and I was, I was um, welcomed by voices singing carols. It was wonderful. Some of you, 
happened that night. Those Christmas carols are wonderful. They're a good reminder of why Jesus came and celebrating all of that. But friends, I think if we were honest and we were, if we're truly followers of Christ, the thing we love about Christmas is remembering the birth of our Savior. Now we know that he didn't actually, he wasn't actually born on the 25th of December. That's the day we've set aside for the celebration of his birth, but it's the impact of his birth to the whole redemptive plan that is so wonderful and exciting for us. And yet there are times that I do get grinchy. I get grinchy when I'm at a place where people are talking about Christmas and they're not talking about Christ. Or there's an opportunity, maybe it's in the context of a church, and there's an opportunity to actually share the gospel, what Christmas is really all about, and it just doesn't go there. It's just this superficial kind of warm, fuzzy message. I get a little grinchy over that because we're missing the real reason for Christmas. Now, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is well known for the following verse. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Okay, but what is this peace on earth? What is the peace that's being talked about here? What is this, this goodwill that is sought after? Here's some questions for us to consider. Is Christmas simply a time of year when our, our faith in humanity is stirred up so that the supposed goodness in us all will come out and so bring peace and goodwill? My friends, that's humanism. Everyone's good. We just got to stir everyone up to, to show the good that's already in them. Is Christmas simply a time of, of kindness and neighborliness and, and merriment with all that you and I come in contact with? And, yeah, it's been fun. I enjoy going to the mall when it's busy at Christmas time and opening doors for people and saying Merry Christmas and um, fighting for parking spots and things like that. It's, it's a great time of the year, right? Um, is Christmas simply a time to be selfless, to give to others, to, to do acts of kindness? Now, there's, there's nothing inherently necessarily bad about a lot of the things that I've just been talking about. In fact, much of it is good, it's wholesome, it's right, it's healthy for a society, but it's, it's lacking. Stirring up people to embrace happiness, joy, hope, and peace, and love and friendship, and forgiveness, celebration, or even goodwill. It's like nailing fresh fruit on a dead tree. Because it looks good for a season, but after a while, it's going to turn rotten. And so Ralph is saying, oh, let's, let's have peace, let's have goodwill, let's have joy, let's have happiness. Oh, I love the Christmas season. But the problem is, if we have the fruit that is not connected to the root of Christmas, that attempt at fruit is going to dissipate. It's going to be gone. And what we need to focus on is the root, the true root that actually produces the fruit of all these things that are part of the Christmas season. You can't just say, well, let's just have peace. We're just going to force it. We're just going to, we're just going to will it. All right, just all together in humanity, we're just going to say peace going to happen. No, it's not. 
And the reason it's not is because there's another thing called sin in the hearts of people. And people are greedy and people are, are wanting to, to get all they can. And so there's always going to be kind of nastiness going on that will undermine all these things that we so desire or hear about at Christmas. This world will never have peace, love, hope, or joy, or forgiveness unless they take a hard look at the root. And of course, the root is this, this theme of redemption, the story of why Jesus even comes to this earth. And friends, what so many people are doing during the Christmas season is they're trying to, 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 to nail this fruit to their lives without considering the root. Now friends, there is something really powerful, more powerful than you and I can imagine that is driving Christmas. And we find it in our text today. Look, if you would, please, at the last verse of this text. All right? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. And look at the last statement. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, what? What? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It is God's zeal that is driving all that has just been said. The zeal of the Lord is the motivation. It's the power. It's the movement. It's the reason behind all that we have just read in this passage. So what is this zeal? In short, it is the passionate commitment of God to keep his covenant promise with his people. And ultimately that means with us. God is committed to the covenants, to the promises that he made with Israel. Now listen, what we have to understand is some of his covenants are unconditional. That means that when God says, I'm going to do this, it doesn't matter how man behaves. God says, I will do this, this will happen. But there is one covenant, the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, that is conditional. And this is the one that says, if you do this, all right, if you are obedient, then you will have, and just summarize it, blessing. If you are disobedient, that blessing will be removed, and there are going to be consequences. Now, even when God's people fail, and they fail because they're sinful, and they are enduring suffering. God, because of his steadfast love, which is another way of saying his covenant love, he steps in and he provides deliverance for them. They don't deserve it. They've wanted from God. They've rebelled against him, but he comes again. His zeal to keep his promise and his covenant drives this deliverance, drives this reconciliation. And so now we want to step back a little bit and consider the setting of what is going on in this text. And this is, by the way, this is not an easy thing. Uh, Isaiah is not an easy book. And quite often we pull passages like this, like Isaiah 9-6, and we quote them. But we don't necessarily know how they fit into the, the kind of outflow of history and how they fit into the book as a whole. Now Isaiah is writing as a prophet of God in the context of 
of uh, Israel and Judah's difficulty and doom and darkness that is coming on them because of their oppressors. But the reason he's doing that is because they have been sinful. They've wandered away from God. God has spoken to them. God has pled with them, and they will not listen. They are rebellious, and they continue to be rebellious, and so they are now in this place where they are going to be receiving judgment. And that judgment is a discipline from God. It is just and it is right based on that covenant promise. So here's the, here's the story. You can look up at the screen because I think it's helpful to see this. In the context here, we have Israel to the north and Judah to the south. By the way, you always get those two mixed up. Just think alphabetically, right? Israel goes first and then Judah to the south, right? Um, Israel and Judah are actually experiencing a time of great expansion and prosperity. I mean, this is, a, in one sense, economically, this is a good time to be in Judah or Israel. The problem is their prosperity and their expansion is not due to their righteousness, which is an interesting thing in Scripture because it is possible for God's people to actually grow and benefit but not be righteous in that process. In other words, it doesn't mean that if you are growing and benefiting financially that you are actually living righteously before God. And what happens here is on the horizon to the east, the northeast, uh, is this, this growing kingdom called the Assyrian. And the Assyrians come knocking on the door of Syria, also known as Aram or Aramea, and Israel and Judah, and they want them to bow down to them, and they want them to pay tribute to them. And so Israel and Syria want none of it. They're not going to do this. But Judah is kind of on the fence. And so Israel and Syria go to war against Judah because they want to unite their threefold front against the Assyrians. You with me there? In the context of all of this that's going on, the king of Judah is now wondering what he should do, and Isaiah is giving counsel from the Lord to him. And his name is Ahaz. And he is told by Isaiah to ask the Lord for a sign from the Lord. But Ahaz, in his unbelief, is refusing to ask for a sign. And so in response to his arrogance, Isaiah delivers the familiar words. This is in chapter 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's interesting that that promise, that messianic promise, is in the context of rebellion and disobedience. We just kind of take it out there. It's a great promise, but there's a context to it that's going on. But Ahaz refuses even to listen to Isaiah's counsel and joins up with Tiglath-Pileser, who is the leader of the Assyrian army. And as a result, yes, Israel and Syria are definitely affected. They are overrun by the Assyrians. Judah is saved only to be the servant of Assyria. In other words, their salvation resulted in their servitude. You get that? It really wasn't much of a salvation at all. 
And so the results are recorded for us in chapter 8 of Isaiah and verse 21 and 22. Just read that if you would along with me. This is just kind of a summary. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and, their, uh, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, friends, those are not happy words, are they? Say, Pastor Rod, I came to church on Christmas Sunday. I want some encouraging, happy words. Well, these are not them. You'll have to wait a little bit. But just think about these words. Distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish. No one in their right minds wants to be in this situation. This, this bondage and suffering at the hands of Assyria is the darkness that has consumed Judah. This was a really, really, really bad day in the history of God's people. But remember, God is faithful to his covenant people. He keeps his promises even when they do not. Now, friends, we should be thankful for that. And even in their darkness, their gloom and anguish, he gives them a word of hope. And he reminds them that he is zealous for his people and their reconciliation. Which brings us then to what I call the proposition. What this, is, this passage is really about. The zeal of the Lord of hosts brings hope for his people. What we're about to read now is in the midst of this darkness, this despair, this gloom, there is hope. And it's a, a message of hope that comes from God. And this hope is for Christmas and beyond. See, Buzz Lightyear was, was around in, in the Bible even, all right? There's a sense in which here, what we're having here is, is hope for the people that he's speaking to, hope for the nation, and it's hope that is received when Jesus comes as a little baby, and it's hope when Jesus departs, and it's hope for us today, and it's hope that will be true years from now. Christmas didn't come about because God up in heaven thought to himself, you know, I want to bring joy and cheer that will last throughout the year. I mean, you see how empty that is. You see how lacking of any substance that that is. He didn't simply want to be an encouragement during this, this season and somehow sprinkle some love dust on mankind that they would feel good about themselves and begin to treat each other with peace and goodwill. No, there's darkness, there's gloom, there's anguish, and this, there's this, this, this is all the result of sin and wickedness and rebellion against God. And they're suffering at the hands of the Assyrians. But still, even though they had violated the covenant, God wanted to give them hope. And that's how chapter 9, verse 1 begins. Sometimes this, this word is really important in Scripture. But... Now, here's all this darkness. Here's all this gloom. Here's all this anguish. Here's all this suffering. But, see, 
It's not an end in itself. It is the means that that he is bringing up here. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. These two themes run through the first 12 chapters of Isaiah. The theme of judgment on Judah and Israel for their sin, as well as the proclamation of future salvation and restoration for them. And what happens in this prophecy is that it is told in the present tense. In other words, what God is saying is so true that you can speak about it in certainty as if what is future is actually happening now. So during the darkness of the time back then, during the darkness of the time when Jesus comes, even during the darkness that we experience here today, we rest in this hope that God gives us during this season. Not simply limiting it to the season, but this is a time when we think about it. So let's first of all look at what I'm calling our hope described. Our hope is described. And I want you to notice how Isaiah, uh, how this, 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 this description of hope flows. It flows in, in, in progress. It flows in movement in these texts. First of all, notice this, this idea of from contempt to glory. Look at verse 1. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, what is this former and latter time? The former time is what's happening in the context of what's going on here with the people of Judah in particular. And it specifically brings up Zebulon and Naphtali. They were the despised lands. They were the the lands on the northern part of the territory that bordered where Assyria was coming in. And they were, like I said, the, the battleground lands. They were the lands you did not want to live in. Charles Rangel, the congressman from New York, was discussing what he believed to be a disproportionate amount of money set aside by the federal government to the state of Mississippi. And in commenting on this, he said, but who really wants to live in Mississippi? In his mind, it was a land that you just didn't want to go to. Now, for someone like myself who lived some years in Michigan, it's Ohio. I mean, who wants to live in Ohio? No one. Or Iowa. It's the land of perfect nothingness, they say. Now, friends, there's this attitude about these locations. Zebulon and Naphtali are despised. They're held in contempt by the people. That's the way it is now. But notice what it says in the latter times, sometime in the future. In other words, with the coming of Jesus, something glorious would happen. Something about the sea, something about the land beyond the Jordan, something about Galilee of the nations. God would restore these territories. These are the territories, by the way, that Assyria came and and settled in and claimed for themselves. They were taken away from the people of God, and God is saying, I will restore the land from these people. So God humbles, but he also honors. Now, you see, from contempt to glory. Next, you see, from darkness to light. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You've heard that before, I'm sure. 
Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. So this, this idea of walking in darkness is the idea of living out their lives in this dark oppression, waiting for the Lord to come, waiting for his, his uh, deliverance. And we see this theme picked up in the Gospels. This is what John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In other words, there was darkness, but the light has come. In fact, in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 4, you're going to see it up on your screen here, uh, there's some things that probably are familiar to you now. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. Did you get that? So here we have the prophecy of Isaiah now being fulfilled as Jesus enters into this region, proclaiming the good news. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, friends, if you want a message for Christmas, there's a message for Christmas. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It flows right out of this text. From darkness to light, from gloom to joy, from gloom to joy. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, just picking something up, you have Israel, you have Judah, but now in verse 3, you have one nation. There's something about God's restoration process that he's going to actually bring the divided people together as one man. And this is a reaffirmation of the promise that God made to Abraham, that he would multiply the seed of Abraham and through him make him a great nation. And, and they would rejoice. They would rejoice because of a, of a good harvest. And in those days, a good harvest was joy for the people. But it was also a time of joy because of victory in battle where much spoil would be brought in. So this, this gloom of anguish that we find at the beginning, in fact, in chapter 8, verse 22, and this thick darkness will be turned to joy in abundance and strength and number and military victory. Friends, for, for the people who are reading this in their context, this is good news. Again, just note the movement again. Contempt to glory, darkness to light, gloom to joy. Those are words that, that demonstrate a, a despair at light. And I just want to ask you the question, can you relate to those words? Can you relate to the, to the emptiness and the anguish and, and the darkness and the struggle that those words communicate this, this past week? And, I went to my optometrist and um, ended up having an exam. And while I was there, just talking with the optometrist who had been going there for years, and she was uh, sharing about her, her daughter who goes to UC Davis, who found out just last week 
that her good friend who attends, I think, Riverside, um, committed suicide right before finals week. And of course, talking a little bit more, and she was saying, you know, it was, it was because of the pressure of the finals exams. She was a straight-A student in high school, and she got to college, and she thought, oh, yeah, I was a straight-A student in high school. It's not going to be a big deal. I kind of breezed through this. And the first few weeks, she kind of went to school with the wrong, for the wrong reasons and just found herself trying to play catch-up, catch-up. And now come the finals, and she's so consumed with failure or the potential of failure that she just wanted to, to die. So she killed herself. Friends, that's doom. That's darkness. That's anguish. But please hear this. There is glory for that kind of despair. There is light in the midst of that darkness. There is joy that can replace the gloom. And by the way, if there's anyone in here that is at a place where they're, they're contemplating what this young girl was contemplating, hear this. A grade is just a grade. Your life is worth far more than some letters after your name. Please don't be so far in despair that you would consider that. Yes, your parents may be disappointed, but guess what? You can take that class again. But oh man, the pressure we put on our young people. And what's hard for many and is often avoided is that the reality of our condition before God is, is not something that people like to hear about. J.D. actually mentioned it. Last week, we had Ed that brought it up in the beginning of our service. I just want to read it again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Oh, thank you, Pastor Rod. Oh, let me keep reading. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work uh, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. The rest of mankind, like the rest of mankind. Now, friends, that's, that's not a wonderful picture. It's not a wonderful diagnosis. But friends, you, you can't get to joy unless you understand the darkness of that gloom. You can't celebrate Christmas. You can't find hope and joy and all those things that are out there. It's like, oh, just nail that fruit to that tree without recognizing that there's a problem with the root that you've chosen. And seeing your condition for what it really is is the means by which we move to the place that we can begin to understand what it is that Christ has done in coming. You see, we are sinful sinners who are in need of a perfect Savior. So we've looked at the description of Judas' hope. No more contempt. No more darkness. No more gloom. Instead, there is glory, light, and joy. And it comes from God to an unworthy people because of his zeal and his faithfulness to his covenant promise. Now we'll see this hope explained for us. Or to put it a little differently, what are the reasons for this hope? And you will notice in the rest of the passage, it divides into three sections that all begin with the word for. 
So these are the reasons why this hope, why there's this transition from contempt to glory, from darkness to joy, from, from gloom, or darkness to light, from gloom to joy. First of all, I want you to notice that the yoke of slavery is broken. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. Now remember, this is language for the people of God. And so they understand what is being communicated here. It is first a reference to the deliverance of the Hebrews from the, the bondage and slavery they were experiencing while they were in Egypt. And the resulting exodus. And he's saying, listen, there, there was this bondage, there was this, this yoke that was on you, but he has broken it. And then he reminds them about what happened in Midian. And that's the story of Gideon. And Gideon, who had this, you know, there, there's this huge Midian army, and, and God was saying, Gideon, I want you to go, and I want you to attack this Midian army. And he's like, okay. And God whittles down this army to 300 men, and they go and surround the camp. And they have trumpets and they have these, these, these vials or lamps and they smash them and the light is shining and they're blowing the trumpets. And what happens? The soldiers in the camp start killing each other. Now what's the point of all this? There is no way that Israel could have delivered themselves from Egypt. There's no way that, that you know, Gideon could say, I've got the strategy, and this is what's going to work. How about we just whittle it down to 300 guys, let's stand around, and we'll just blow our trumpets. I don't know if the military today would like that strategy. The point here is this. God had them do something in such a manner that it could only be God that delivered them from that bondage. You see, the yoke of slavery is broken. The yoke is suffering endured. The rod is suffering inflicted. But all that is coming to an end. Only God can deliver Israel from Egypt. Only God could send 300 men and end up confounding the Midianites and ending up routing them on that day. So this is, this is the hope explained. First of all, the yoke of slavery is gone. Secondly, and it ties into the first here, the instruments of war are burned. The instruments of war are burned. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So the results of the battle here are bloodied boots and garments that are burned. They are no longer needed. Now listen, the only person that can end war is not Donald Trump, okay? Or anyone else that is a leader in this world. The only one that can end war is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I mean, that's what the scripture is saying to us here. Only God can end it. All this language of bondage and slavery and darkness and gloom, battles and blood, should remind us of a deeper reality. The darkness, this gloom, this slavery, this bondage, this warfare, this suffering is because it is brought on by Satan himself. He is the one who enslaves us to sin. He is the one whose kingdom is darkness. He is the one who brings gloom and anguish. But there is still hope. Because a deliverer is coming. 
And so that moves us right into verse 6. Now you see how, how Isaiah is setting all this up now to give us this deliverer. The Savior is now born. And we're going to find you know, four kind of statements about who he is and what he's like. But first of all, notice the Savior's birth. The Savior's birth. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. So there's a child that is born. There's a son that is given. There's a child which is emphasizing humanity. There's a promised son which is emphasizing deity. One is born, one is given. But I want you to pause a little bit and just notice the first three words of this verse. For to us. Just, just ponder the magnitude of that statement. Again, the readers that are reading what Isaiah is prophesying or listening to it are realizing that what is being said is present but it's also future, but it's for them and for their people. And if you would, would extend it out as the church now, we are God's people, so it is just as much for us as it was for them. The Son is for us. Christmas is about God doing something for us. You see, we don't deserve his kindness. We are unworthy of it. We don't deserve, uh, uh, we deserve the suffering and the gloom and, and the bondage, but God has done something for us. And so when the angels come to the shepherds, they say, today in the city of David, a savior was born for you. This is God's gift to us. Emmanuel, which means God with us, but not just at his birth, in his life, but even on the cross, he has come to be with us. And he continues then to be with us through the person of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Son of God took our place on the cross. He suffered the shame and the reproach and the, the anguish and the blood. He bore our sin and he endured the wrath of the Father. And friends, that is the weight of this text. There's a child that is born, Emmanuel. There is a son that is given for sacrifice, for redemption, for reconciliation. For God so loved the world, what? That he gave. And do we understand that that giving has as its future purpose the dying? Right? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There is a purpose behind this. Get this. There is a zeal working behind the fulfillment and the coming of Jesus in the Gospels that we call Christmas. Secondly, notice the Savior's rule. It says, and the government shall be on his shoulders. Boy, the world is full of failed governments, isn't it? I mean, just looking back through history, you had the, the pharaohs who, who enslaved so many people just to build all of their, all their buildings and pyramids. You have the Assyrians who introduced basically terror as a means of people to bow the knee. They left piles and piles of corpses 
in their wake as they went through places. The Greeks sought to spread the fruit of wisdom ar around their, uh, their territories. The Romans built enor an enormous empire with the power of their legions. And as things developed, the divine right of kings, in other words, the monarchy, dominated Christendom in the Western Hemisphere and brought about the feudal system. And then, of course, the American Revolution brought about this idea uh, away from the monarchy, but establishing a government that was of the people, by the people, and for the people. And soon after that, you have other forms of government, communism, socialism, dictatorships. I like what Winston Churchill says. He says, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. And he's getting to a point. Why? Because no human government will ever be truly, ultimately successful. And why is that? Because human government is tainted by the sins of the humans who are serving in that place. So a king and a monarch system is only as good as the character of that king. When a king dies and a new king comes on the throne or a new queen comes on the throne, you better look out because you don't know what's coming. Human governments are not the end all. What Jesus is, is here described for us, it says the government will be on his shoulders. Get this. He will shoulder the responsibility of governing. And his, his governing will be perfect. It will be right. It will be just. It will not be tainted by sin. You probably heard the expression, don't carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. Because you don't have to. There's someone else who carries the weight of the world on his shoulders. We can rest on him. In fact, our, our, the satisfaction for the people is that this deliverer is going to come and he is going to carry the weight. He is going to shoulder the burden that they have been shouldering. This is good news. The Savior's birth, the Savior's rule, the Savior's character now. This is the part that we're really familiar with. And his name shall be called. His, his character, there's something in the name here that demonstrates who he is. Now, there's some differences of opinion as to what these different titles are referring to. And so I'm, I'm doing my best to give you what I believe uh, they're directing here. But notice, first of all, Wonderful Counselor. Uh, there's four titles here. Wonderful Counselor, um, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But the idea here of a, of a Wonderful Counselor, it, it literally means a, a, a wonder of a counselor. In other words, it's a counselor who demonstrates his magnificence with wonder. It's, it's a royal expression. And friends, isn't that what we've seen as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark? As people are watching and seeing Jesus and he's performing miracle after miracle, and what is their response? They're all astonished. They're all amazed. But not just only at his power, that is on display, but they're also amazed at what he is saying because it's wise. He is a counselor then that is a wonderful, wise counselor. But the idea of counsel in Isaiah 
isn't just about wisdom and thoughts. It is, however, about God's counsel. No, it's God's plans, God's purposes. Who can know the mind of the Lord? Who can challenge the, the counsels of the Lord? What God decrees, he will do. What God promises, he will fulfill. See, he's a wonderful counselor. Secondly, he's a mighty God. Literally, he's, he's, he's the defender. He's the guardian of his people. He's the security his people need. He's the, he's the one that I, I just kind of reflected on these, and I thought about, I thought about these pictures of, of Christ in particular. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. In there, you have this, this picture of, of one who is there to guard and protect and to lead and to nourish and to help. But the Lord is also an all-powerful warrior who will someday return to, to, to earth to slay his enemies with the sword coming out of his mouth. He's a mighty God. He, he demonstrates his omnipotence. In other words, his, the fact that he is all-powerful. Then everlasting Father, and I think this is one that we're often confused by. How can Jesus be Father when God, you know, God is considered the Father? And, but this is not talking about the Son's relationship to the Father. This is talking about actually the Son's relationship to time. Notice again, it's the everlasting Father. He is a Father of time. He is the one who is over time. And in that relationship of time, as he interacts with his people, how does he interact? He acts and, 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 and behaves in such a way that he is like a father to us. And it goes on for eternity. He is the one who carries out that character till the end. And of course, he cares for us with fatherly affection and tenderness and compassion. Then he's the prince of peace, and the idea here of prince is, is not the idea of, a, of the son of a king or a potential king who is waiting to be king because he's a prince. The idea here simply is a, is a ruler, and he is the ruler who then is carrying out his, his authority and carrying out that rule in such a way that he is administering peace in the land. So embodied in this title is the work of salvation, whereby he removed the impediments or the stumbling blocks to peace, harmony, and fellowship with God. He is peace because he reconciled his people to God. He also will rule over a new kingdom with peace. And so we, we take all this together and just think of it this way. He instructs with wisdom, which is divine. He, he, he will act in power as this mighty God for his people. He will love and care for his children like a father throughout time. And he will come and bring lasting peace and blessing. Now this is the person who's going to be sitting on that throne. This is the one who will be the deliverer. This is the one that these people are putting their hope in. He's the one who will shoulder this new government. And then we see not only the Savior's character, but the Savior's kingdom. And notice how, I, how Isaiah brings this all kind of back to these covenants again of the increase of his government and of peace 
there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This passage is simply advancing the covenant promise given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You see how this, this promise of this child is, is connected on both sides with these covenant promises that God says, I will do this. And notice what it's saying here. I'm reading from 2 Samuel 7, 16 and see the similarities. And your house, speaking to David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so when Jesus rules, notice the words here, he rules with peace, with justice, and with righteousness. Now, don't you want to be a part of that kingdom? Don't you want to interact with that kind of ruler? Absolutely, because you know what he will do will be right. It will be good. Now, friends, how is all this taking place? The zeal of the Lord will do this. See, Christmas is about God. <laughs> it's about God keeping his promise. It's about God doing what he says he will do in spite of man's sinfulness. And when man is in darkness and in gloom and in anguish because of their wickedness, because of their sinfulness, God comes and says, I have hope for you. I have good news. A child will be born. A son will be given. Oh, and I want you to look at him and I want you to see him for all his majestic glory. And this promise is a thread throughout the pages of God's word and throughout ancient history and the time of the Gospels and even through the present day into the future because God is not done keeping his promises. So we can, we can certainly say, unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given. And we can have the same hope. It's intriguing to me that Assyria came to Judah and demanded that they bow the knee and pay tribute to find salvation. And Jesus comes saying, I have paid the tribute. And what we need to do then is simply bow the knee because he has done what needs to be done on our behalf. Three questions I want to leave you with this morning. I want you to think about. Number one, are you tapped in to the root? It's so easy trying to live your life nailing good fruit to a dead tree. Trying to be something that you're really not. Trying to impress people with stuff that, oh, look at me, look what I'm doing, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and I'm doing this for God. And, and ultimately, it's, it's not for God you're trying to create a scenario, trying to create a facade as if you are part of things, but you're not really tapped into the root. In other words, the fruit is not the result of the root that is taking place in your life. 
In other words, you've been around Christianity. It may be, maybe Christmas is one of those times when you, you show up at church, or maybe it's a time when you begin to think about these things. But the, there's, no, there's no real root in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Christmas, if, if you strip it all away, it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about God's plan unfolding through the coming of his son who ultimately will go to a cross and pay for the sin of mankind on that cross. And those who believe in him, in what he has done and have their sins paid for with that sacrifice are the ones then who begin to bear fruit. And just I want you to think through the passage we've looked at here. And notice the words that are used and the promises that are given. There's glory, there's light, there's joy, there's peace, there's this idea of hope. And all of this is the fruit of what God is doing. And his people bearing fruit now because they are relying on that root of Christ himself, the deliverer that has come. Secondly, are your shoulders heavy? Now, I understand how it's so easy to carry, not the weight of the world, but maybe the weight of Castro Valley or the weight of the Bay Area or the weight of, and you fill in the blank on your shoulders, and it can consume you. And certainly God wants us to be responsible with the things that he's given us to be responsible for, and we need to make sure we're interacting with him. But listen, God doesn't expect you to be able to handle it all yourself. I mean, listen to one very, very familiar text that Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are what? Heavy laden? And I will give you what? Rest. I just think about this. Would you rather have heavy laden or rest? Well, the choice is up to you. Right? Again, going back to my visit to the optometrist. A or B? A or B? I think if we had the choice, it would be rest. Now friends, understand this. The gospel is the means by which rest comes. When we allow Jesus to shoulder the responsibility and the burden of the world rather than us, we are saying, I am, I'm giving it to you. That doesn't mean we don't take responsibility for the things that we have. But you know what? We are going to fail. <laughs> We're going to fall short. Things are going to turn upside down. The grass isn't going to be cut in time. Ah! It'll be okay. It's not that big of a problem. But more importantly, he says, come to me. And when you come to him, understand this, you begin to see life differently. You begin to, to view the, the circumstances around you differently. And you, be, you begin to, to say, you know what? I don't have to be the one who is, who is holding on to this. I don't have to be the one that's trying to make this thing happen. And you can put it with Jesus and you can go, Ah, my friends, that is a beautiful thing. That is a wonderful gift that comes as a result of the gospel. It comes as the result 
of knowing that for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And finally, friends, I want you to consider this. For all of us here today, you see Jesus for who he really is. You know, so many times we think of Jesus more in kind of a New Testament context. We realize there's some Old Testament passages that kind of, you know, they kind of shout out to this, deliver this coming. And there's a sense in which we have that. But do, do we understand that, that Jesus is the hope, not just our hope, but the hope of even the people that are being talked about here who are in this bondage and darkness and gloom? That God through Isaiah is saying to them, a deliverer is coming. He doesn't say when, but he says he is. And we are living on the other side because the deliverer has come. Now we might be awaiting his return, but we can live now out of the certainty and the joy and the blessing of having this deliverer come and resting in him and relying on him. Again, just to remind you what we've seen, maybe put it in different terms. We've seen Jesus, the God-man. We've seen Jesus, this, this, this majestic ruler. We've seen Jesus, the one who is perfect in character. We've seen Jesus, who is the one who will rule with justice and righteousness. Now, friends, if if there's a part of you that longs for this justice and righteousness because of the world in which we live, Jesus is the answer. So this Christmas season, let's be careful uh, not to be grinchy about the things that we hear. The world has caught up with the culture of Christmas. We understand that, right? But there's a sadness when people just talk about hope and love and joy and cheer and all these things, and they're trying to force something that they have no connection to the source, and that is Christ himself. And not just kind of like this warm, fuzzy Christ or this cooing baby in the manger, but the Christ who has come because of the divine plan, who has brought reconciliation to mankind because of his sacrifice on the cross. There's a substance to Christmas. There is a zeal of the Lord for Christmas and beyond. Let's celebrate that as God's people today. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, child, son, to come to this earth be with us as mankind, to, to suffer and struggle the, the temptations that we go through, to experience the, the, the difficulties of life, and yet at the same time, to be faithful and to be perfect in living that life, and ultimately to go to a cross, to die a death that you did not deserve, you took our place. And you hung there, and you bore the suffering and the shame of that cross as an act of love for us. Lord, may that just be fresh with us today. 
Help us, Lord, to see the beauty of Emmanuel. See the beauty of what it is for you to be our deliverer. To see you in, in your precious, pure character. And to long for that kingdom where there'll be righteousness, where there'll be justice, where there'll be peace. But Lord, while we are here, may we do our part to live that out. So Lord, may we do our part to, yes, bring cheer to other people that will last throughout the year, Lord. Not because we're simply trying to be superficial, but because we're giving the gospel which lasts. Hearts are receptive to you. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, for your